Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. When a person digs into any religious or philosophical tradition, rebels can be found. People who push subtle boundaries here and there can be ever so much fun, interesting, and contain a vast wealth of stories and experiences. Roshi Grace Shearson is, to me, one of those rebels. Shearson is a teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage of Soto Zen Buddhism. After riding her motorcycle across San Francisco in the 1960s to the San Francisco Zen Center, Roshi Grace went on to practice both Soto and Rinzai Zen in the U.S., Canada, and Japan. She also became a clinical psychologist, the head teacher of the Central Valley Zen Foundation, president of Shogaku Zen Institute, and meditation teacher at Stanford University. She is the author of the brand new book, Naked in the Zendo, Stories of Uptight Zen, Wild-Ass Zen, and Enlightenment, Wherever You Are, which is largely the topic of our conversation in this episode. The book, Naked in the Zendo, is out now from Shambhala Publications. Roshi Grace is also the author of the book Zen Women, which we talk about several times throughout the conversation. You can find her at gracesheerson.com and you can follow Classical Ideas at twitter.com slash classical underscore ideas or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Without further delay, Please enjoy my conversation with Roshi Grace Shearson. Thanks for listening. Roshi Grace Shearson, welcome to Classical Ideas. Well, thank you for having me and for talking about my book. I'm so excited to have you on today to talk about your book, Naked in the Zendo, Stories of Uptight Zen, Wild-Ass Zen, and Enlightenment, wherever you are. So it's great to have you here. Um, Can you introduce yourself however you see fit to the audience so they can get a sense of who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm a uh, longtime practitioner of Zen, but please don't be disillusioned in Zen because of my not being able to levitate or anything else. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist. And um, primarily my work now is being a grandma. And I have one last granddaughter who still cuddles that I spend time with. She's in New York. So that's my big, my big thrill. Excellent. I love it. How long have you been practicing Zen in general? Uh-huh. I started in the 60s. So maybe it was 66, maybe it was 67. So it's been 52 years, maybe. Nice. And I know that your first exposure to Zen was meeting the legendary founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, correct? Yes. Yes. I met Suzuki Roshi and uh, showed up at the Zen Center um, with my sister. And we'd both ridden our motorcycles across the Bay Bridge, had our psychedelic helmets with fringe that we'd glued on. And our, uh, my clothing was out of the Wizard of Oz. I had great shoes. And um, when he saw us, he got this great smile because he'd been in San Francisco for a while and he'd seen hippies before and he knew what we were there for. You know, we were there to have some fun, to get high. And that's what we were there for. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And I know that he, he, he passed away young. So, I mean, the amount of people that are around right now practicing Zen that actually met him and knew him, I mean, it's, it's not that many people, right? Yeah, because not only did he pass away young, but we're all getting on. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people who did know him are uh, gone. And, uh, and so, but it's, he, you know, he lives on through us. And it's interesting for me when I started uh, the Shogaku Zen priest ongoing training, and it was with some of the people who had known him and who came out of San Francisco Zen Center. And I felt in a certain way like he had brought us together to do this kind of training to help uh, bring Zen into our culture and teach people how to talk to each other, to do counseling actually when they needed to, and not to just be able to attend to the altar, but to be able to attend to other beings. Was your exposure to Zen sort of what set you down your path of eventually becoming a clinical psychologist as well? Well, I was already interested in psychology, and that was in part because of my sister, who had been rather unstable in her life and had had one time attempted suicide. And I actually had put a chapter like that in the book, but she didn't allow it. So <clears throat> she felt like she didn't want her daughters to know. So. Mm. Here's this podcast. That's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because of that incident and early on in my family, when my father died, there were a lot of difficulties in the family. And we actually went to therapy during the 50s, I think, and 60s as a family. So I think I was interested from that time. So before Excellent. Okay. Well, I know that you also practice multiple lineages of Zen. I know that San Francisco Zen Center is a Soto center, and I know that you've also done Rinzai practice as well. How did you decide to practice multiple different paths of Zen? What did that do for you? Well, I, I did feel that it was important to look at the mountain from a different perspective. So I felt that way, but I rejected two invitations that I had heard from people to practice with Bukshima Roshi. And when I heard the third invitation, that there was someone in Kyoto who was really a resource and a wonder, I said, oh, that's a third time I've heard that name. So I'm going to meet him. And when I met him, he blew me away. So mm -hmm. because of that, uh, that's how I practice Urenzai, not because it, intentionally. I said, oh, I should also have some Rinzai in my um, portfolio. But I also um, practiced with a Tibetan teacher, uh, Pamela Rinpoche, because Dzogchen is so much like Zen. And I think it's important mm, to, look at, to look at the practice itself and see how it's been framed by culture. Yeah. Um, so... We're here today to talk about your brand new book, Naked in the Zendo, from Shambhala Publications, which I read on an airplane to and from Brazil recently. Yeah. And uh, the cover, it's, it's very striking. It jumps out at you. And if someone walks through a bookstore and they sees this book with the cover with naked on the cover, it will certainly jump out at readers thinking that Zen folks meditate naked in, in their Zen practices. So what does this title mean? Because it's such a hilarious story and it's such a great title as well because it's just so eye-popping. Well, the funny thing was how much I objected to both the cover and the title. I love it. I love it. Tell me why. I, 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 but um, 
both my husband and my younger son are in marketing and they were like, no, this will sell books, mom, <laughs> get over yourself. But I wanted some beautiful aesthetic Japanese print, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, if, if the title as they uh, came to describe it at Shambhala was um, we need to leave the ego's clothing behind. Because one of the things that happens in the Zendo and, and the story about the man whose pants fell off in the Zendo, one of the things that happens is we try to be good at the practice, just like everything else in our life. We, we want to be good at it. We want to be good at the things we do at work. We want to be good parents, of course, and good partners. But we have some achievement. We have some pressure on us to stand out. And so understanding that, as I taught my students after that incident of his pants falling off, it's like, look, none of us can top that. Mm. So please make your mistakes often and publicly, because there's nothing that devastates the ego more than being humiliated publicly. And I think um, it's a little used tool mm. <laughs> in Zen. I think when you go to Zen centers, generally people try to do a perfect ceremony and the best part are the mistakes because then what do you do exactly well and i've actually gone to zen retreats uh, myself and i'm everybody's always looking around and looking to see what the other person is doing to see who's doing it the most correct you know what i mean everybody wants to be so right yeah yeah there's a lot of pressure and also when new people come um i I notice that people who've been around will say, don't step on the cracks in the tatami and, you know, walk like this, lead, <clears throat> walk into the zendo with your left foot first and all kinds of things that are so unwelcoming. So it, it's something that we imbibe uh, about doing it right. And that comes both from our own ego's uh, desire to be good, but also from the culture, the mm. culture of, of the Japanese tradition, which um, is very specific about how you do ritual and ceremony. And it was very interesting to me to practice in Japan. I practice at both Soto and Rinzai temples. And um, the folks who came from San Francisco Zen Center were the most uncomfortable in learning how to do the Japanese rituals because they actually knew how to do it the right way. Mm. They could do it the right way. And, and here we are in Japan, and the Japanese were doing it a little differently. Not, you know, there were small differences, maybe in the way they folded a cloth, but that wasn't right. Mm. And so their resistance to learning to just be with whoever was doing the ritual uh, was very interesting. So you, are you saying that like you see the American people as wanting to be more correct, like they want to get everything exactly right? Yes. Well, the Japanese people do too, in my opinion. One of the things, you know, if you wear a priest's robe, you have an okasa that folds over your shoulder. And it's a kind of a koan in itself in that, in that it's totally unpredictable. That It's always falling apart. And the piece of the robe is always coming forward. In Japan, I saw a monk who had put Velcro there. Mm. And so that it didn't come down when you bowed. And... <laughs> And when I put, said to him, oh, look at that. Isn't, that. isn't that cool? However, I said it in Japanese. She said, shh, don't tell anyone, you know, because it, it was totally blended in. So, no, we all, we all try to perform well, but there's um, the way of doing form in Japanese, as you notice, is it, it's, an, it's an art in itself. 
the way they do things and the way they imitate and can uh, imitation to a certain degree perfectly. Mm. And so I, that's I, part of the culture. That, that also reminds me of a story in the book that in a chapter called Death by Cezar, where a woman had snuck a Cezar bench in within her robes. And then so she yeah. had it concealed under her robes so that whenever they were doing the Cezar pose, she sat on the bench instead of sitting on her heels. And it was just such a beautiful moment because that is exactly what I would want to be doing as well. I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is going to hurt so bad. How can I cheat to make it not painful? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the robes, in Japan, uh, the traditional robes, and I often get mine adjusted when I have them made there, have these huge sleeves, just huge. So they hang down maybe a couple feet, and that's where she had it tucked in, into the robe itself. So, yeah, it, it's uh, she, the, the importance of looking like everyone else is, is a big deal there. Awesome. Gotcha. Um, so in the uh, so I was reading this book and I read the forward to the book, which was written by I presume a friend of yours, Roshi Joan Halifax, who is uh-huh. another great American Zen teacher. Um, and so that's really cool. I always love seeing who people can get to collaborate on their books because it just ad- adds a new dimension to the way that I'm going to be thinking about the author as I go into reading a book. And she said something curious in the in the forward. She said that you are a quote postmodern human, and I didn't really know what that meant. Do you have any sense of what Roshi Joan meant whenever she said postmodern human in the forward to your book? Well, I only looked it up after you pointed it out to me because I actually, having read the <clears throat> forward many times, never saw that. But I did see it um, after you pointed it out to me. And I think it means someone who um, moves beyond all the knowledge that we have accumulated in the 19th, 20th century about how things are to understand that those things are shaped culturally, not necessarily true. So for example, for me, being postmodern might mean um, I'm a Zen teacher, but being a mother and a grandmother is very central to my life. That's not the way it is in other Asian countries. The women in particular keep celibacy and do not have families because culturally it isn't allowed. So here's an example of just allowing my life to to flower as it is and and putting awareness and karma as my leaders versus saying well here are the rules if i'm going to be a zen person i'm not going to marry yeah and i also was thinking about how um you know, if you are looking at the way the world is, can you envision ways that the world can be better? And then can you be a part of moving the world towards those future ambitions, um, regardless if you ever experience them yourselves or not? Like, do you have the ability to have a vision for what the future could be? Do you know what I mean? Well, yes, I do know what you mean. And it sounds um, very appealing. For me, um, I, the only thing I can do is be myself. Mm. <laughs> and I, I, I think that in certain situations, that's rather disturbing and, and might move things in a different direction. So I've often said, um, well, look, you can't put a tablecloth on an elephant and call it a dining table. I'm just going to have to be me. And I'm not particularly well suited to what the Zen ideal is, which is very even-tempered, and um, introspective and 
politically correct and so on. No, I'm not like that. So uh, it's, it's been amazing to me that I've been able to uh, survive and to use Zen practice as a form of self-expression and flowering, uh, even though I don't really fit the model. Yeah, you're kind of like a Taoist in that way too, you know, the, the flourishing of, human, of humanity and finding your natural rhythm amidst the uh, way that we try to fit things into certain shapes in our society. Yeah. So you're kind of like a Zen Taoist rebel to me. That would have been an interesting <laughs> title for the book too, Zen Rebel. I love yeah. it. Because yeah. you seem like a rabble rouser in the book, you know what I mean? Like you're constantly kind of like having inside jokes and nudging people and poking and giving winks and being like, hey, look at how we're yeah. bending these rules a little bit. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I can't help myself, so uh, I always find that place. As in the situation with the nun and the bench, uh, when she was corrected because she wasn't actually a Soto nun, and there were only two women out of the hundreds and hundreds of priests in the room. There were only two of us. And um, when the monk took the bench away from her, I wanted to see what would happen if he tried to take it away from me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's the rabble rousing part. It's like, okay, you took the bench away from her. And I immediately kind of motioned to her, let me, let me have the bench. So she passed the bench to me. And of course he came back out once he saw I was sitting on the bench and said, I'm sure you'd be more comfortable in a chair. And I said, no, I would not. And shook my head. No. Now for a, uh, in Japan, you just don't say no. You might say, maybe, sort of, if you put your head off to the right and then say, choto, but you don't say no. And particularly as a nun, the rules are such as established supposedly by the Buddha that a nun never corrects or says no to the monk. That's the monk's job to straighten you out. So he was so flummoxed by it, he didn't know what to do. Mm. And I kept the bench. Excellent. Well, and then you got to watch all the people sweating bullets, like realizing they were losing all the feelings and sensation in their ankles and feet and that they were in utter agony. And I actually annotated in the book. I was like, let them suffer. I wrote that next to the passage in, in that part of your book. So I made a note to myself that I read last night again. And I was like, holy, holy cow. I wrote, let them suffer next to the, next to the image of all the monks sitting in Seiza for hours at a time. Uh, well, the thing is, when you're young, sometimes you can do it. And you, what you don't know is what will result in permanent damage. You yeah, don't know that. And so, you know, you, you kind of learn that too late. Yeah. <laughs> you think, I, I want to look good here. And Suzuki Roshi had an expression for that. He used to say, looks like good. In other words, you're denying yourself um, and you're trying to be something that looks like good. And so you learn that a little late in the practice, sometime after you've had some injuries, sports injuries, I call them, from doing zazen for too long and sitting in those positions and trying to look like good. Yeah, exactly. Um, something else that you wrote about in the book that really jumped out at me is you write about four stages of developing awareness as a practice. And those four stages are discovery amplification, circulating awareness, and awareness arising spontaneously. Can you discuss a little bit about the importance of these four stages in the writing process of the book itself? Yes. I, I, I can't remember the name of the first book. It was one of the collections of Soto Zen women that um, Edo Carney Roshi wrote about. Uh, she collected all of our writings. But I wrote these four stages of development 
in talking about what happened when you did a retreat, a long multiple day retreat that the, you went through these stages of first, first getting through the discomfort and finding what is it that I'm doing here? Because, you know, your first day, maybe you're thinking, I'm never going to do this again. This is so horrible. Just sitting here all day. I have so many things I could be doing. So just finding what am I doing here and then connecting with that awareness. So that's where that came from was the idea of what happens when you do a long retreat. So yeah, it, those stages for me were kind of, were what I do. Uh, and, you know, it's funny when you're writing, you think, well, everybody knows this, right? <laughs> everybody knows first you figure out what you're doing on the cushion, you connect with your awareness. And then as you're doing your meditation, whether it be a koan, uh, what's the sound of one hand, or whether it be just following your breath, you're really developing your relationship, you're deepening, you're amplifying your relationship to this awareness. And then as we have these exercises together of doing meals and so on together, or whether it's walking meditation or doing other rituals, we feel the flow of this awareness and it, the, the sensitivity we have to other people in our relationships. And then it's, for me, it was more of the parenting, which is you can't sit down on a cushion to deal with crises that arise in your family life. You need to be present and it needs to be something that arises spontaneously. Even after I was trained as a psychologist, my sons would say to me, don't therapize. <laughs> you need to sound natural. Yeah. So those were the stages that were very obvious to me. And, you know, as I say, in writing, you think, well, everybody knows this, right? But it turned out they didn't. So that was very important for me in organizing the book because I think people need to have some map of what you're going to talk about in yeah. order to try to understand what it is each chapter is teaching. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes whenever I read books about Zen, the thing that jumps out to me is like, I feel like as I'm reading it, like, I feel like I know these things, but it's being articulated in a new way so that it helps me explain inexplicable things that I previously would not have had the words to convey, you know? Yes. Even though we say Zen is beyond words, words do help us a lot. And I say to people, you know, the words are the map that we're drawing of the territory. You still have to go there to actually know the place, but maybe this can help guide you a bit. Yeah. Um, also, something that really jumps out at me is the discussions of gender within the book. And I know that you are, uh, you say very early in the book that you are looking at your role within a traditional patriarchal structure of Zen Buddhism in Japan and in the U.S. And you've practiced Zen for a long time. Um, how do you see your role as like an internal change agent within Zen? Because, you know, as like that rebellious uh, spirit that we kind of talked about earlier, how do you see, how do you frame yourself within this? Because like Zen seems to be changing a lot as every year passes. So how do you see your role within that? Well, again, I've only been able to be myself. And what I've learned about that is sometimes I have to really tone it down to make a point. Mm. So, so one of the things that I worked on um, in my book, Zen Women, was finding the stories of women who actually existed, who taught, who had a teaching, 
and that we knew something about. So that was from the time of the Buddha onward to our more recent Zen ancestors in Japan. Because as women, Suzuki Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, and Sasaki Roshi, and Shimano Roshi, none of the teachers who came over from Japan had much experience working with women. Or if you ask Japanese women, tell me something about the females in your Zen tradition, they would say there are none. We didn't learn about any of them. We learned, we, you know, we went to Zen monasteries in high school and so on, and we learned. But, so nobody knew about them. So for me, just telling the stories, gathering them, in which we had a few of them bit by bit, and putting them all in one place so people could see a collection of them, that was my first book, Zen Women. From that book and from others who worked in the field, like Chico Sally Tisdale, who wrote a, a book about women in, in practice, we created a document that um, honors the female ancestors, which was accepted, um, not authorized, but accepted as a, as a document. So people could use it or not use it. Now it was very interesting because the men who didn't, and it was men who didn't like this document, said, you can't call it a lineage. You know, we have a lineage that was given to us by our teachers that includes the teachers and the teachers' teachers and all the way back to the Buddha. But you can't call these women a lineage. So it's called a women ancestor document. And I have copies of it, and some women were so inspired as to make um, copies of this document on rice paper, beautiful copies that can be included in ceremonies when people take the precepts. So in a certain way that has changed, really changed the Soto Zen tradition. And um, it was interesting to me that Norman Fisher, who's quite admired and a leader in our Soto Zen world, um, I had to ask him to partner with me because if I tried to do it, it was too revolutionary. But if I got Norman alongside me, people would listen. So you have to learn how to affect change in an institution, which I'm not very good at. <laughs> well, I think that you've navigated that uh, really interestingly. Um, and something that I'm just marginally interested in a little bit is I've also followed a little bit about the story and biography of um, Ruth Fuller Sasaki. Are you aware of her? Yes, I am. And there was the recent book that was written about her and Sasaki, her husband. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen that book? Zen Odyssey, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think I wrote a blurb for that book. I loved it. And I did too. The, I loved it. I, I'd been to her temple uh, in Kyoto and uh, uh, Daitokuji. She has a little sub-temple there, Rosanen or something. I can't remember the name. But anyway, yes, I thought she was very impressive and very sincere. And I was blown away by the whole story of her relationship with Roshi and also um, I'm blocking the name of the, the man her daughter married. Alan Watts. <laughs> Alan Watts. Yeah. I, <laughs> who, who some people really admire as a pioneer in Zen and what, what that book exposed was that he was also a predator. Well, and Alan didn't really have a Zen practice either. He knew a lot about it from like an academic perspective and he gave talks on it, but he wasn't like a Zen practitioner per se. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So 
I refer people now to that book when they start expounding on the greatness of Alan Watts. Yes, he had a way with words and he was very uh, intelligent, brilliant, but he also took advantage when he went back into being a minister of the women in his church. It was terrible. Mm. Um, I mean, that's a huge history within religions in general, and I try to follow that. Are there any other like Zen glass ceiling smashers that you really admire that you wanted to you know point people towards? Well, I thought Kojima Kendo um, in the stories that I wrote about her and Zen women, mm. her sincerity and you know after the bombings in wherever she was, what city I don't remember in Japan her walking across glass barefoot essentially to get help for and go, you know for the nuns that she was taking care of really an extraordinary nun very courageous and also someone who uh, within soto helped change the tradition to get some equality for women who were not allowed to be leaders in soto zen this was about world war 2 time um, now, women can have their temples and be leaders in Soto Zen, and it's because of Kojima Kendo. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, so, Naked in the Zendo opens with a sentence that shook me, like, to my core, okay? So, I have a six-year-old daughter, and... Um, you know, there, there's a lot of stories in, in the early in the book that really jumps out at me. But you write that as a young child, I remember watching my mind open. And mm -hmm. so like whenever I'm actually doing like a consistent meditation practice, like I can like feel myself doing that. Like I almost feel like I'm face to face with myself whenever I'm actually sitting and, um, you know, doing that regularly. How does that line of being a young child and watching your mind open still resonate with your practice now? Well, what happens now, um, as I'm looking out at the mountains, is I realize when, when I stop for a moment and breathe and look at the mountains, that I am the mountains, that I am the sky that surrounds the mountains. And that, at my age of 73, is a, is a big comfort because we know we're going to disappear. Our bodies will disappear, but knowing that we are actually the mind opening to know this is really what I am. I am everything. And, and actually experiencing that is a great comfort. Wonderful. And then you go into like another story in your early life where your father dies and you were six when that happened, correct? Yes. How old was he? So he would have been in his thirties, um, maybe before 35, something like that. So, I'm 36 and yeah. my daughter is six. And yeah. that line just like punched me in the face um, when you said that your father died when you were six because my daughter's six and I'm 36. So you clearly said that you remember little of him in uh -huh. the book. So that means that if I died now, my daughter would remember me for a while, but like she would forget almost everything about me over time. And so that, that really messed with my head a little bit when I was sitting on the airplane 40,000 feet above the sky flying yeah. over Colombia in South America reading yeah. this line. Yeah. So knowing what you know of him, um, he was a complicated figure that you write about in the book. Um, are there any like lessons that you've picked up in Zen that you wish you could have told him like later in life? Well, I think 
you know, even though I don't remember everything about his actual physical and emotional being, there's a, there's a space there. And it continues through me. And what's most interesting is that my younger son, of all the grandchildren in my, of my three siblings, looks the most like my father. Mm. So there's a continuity there. And I guess that's what I would say. My father used to, my mother told me that he used to tell her, you're the strong one. You're going to survive. You're going to live a long time. And I know you're going to take care of things. But there's something about him that lives on too. And that's what I would tell him. Wonderful. That would be a nice, uh, nice comfort. Um, There's a lot of painful stuff in the book. Um, And so I was looking, I I had so many things pop into my mind as I was reading the book. And another one that was really painful was you reading the story of hearing a woman get attacked in Berkeley, California, when you were in college behind your house and she was screaming and screaming outside the window. Um, And then you brought her into the house to, um, you know, kind of calm down and figure out what had happened. And I had a sort of similar experience. Um, I used to live in Columbia, Missouri, and I went to University of Missouri. And I was driving home from my bar job at like 2 a.m. And my friend and I saw this like pair of feet sticking out of these bushes um, next to a fraternity house. So her feet were hanging out on the road, bare feet, 2 o'clock in the morning. And we pull over, we get out, and there's a girl sitting inside the bushes. She has no shoes. She's sobbing, and she's totally disoriented. And so something obviously bad had happened to her. She was sort of in shock. She let us put her in the car, and we took her to her house, and she lived in a sorority house. And we told the story of what um, we thought had happened, and we gave them our contact info, but we never heard a word about it. And so... um, it was one of those moments in life that shook me so hard and I've never forgotten it. And I never knew if I did the right thing or if there was anything that I could do. And so you pose this koan in the book um, that says, when nothing will do, what will you do? And that's such a profound question. Um, how often in your life have you been, have you reminded yourself of that koan when nothing will do, what will you do? Well, actually, very often nowadays, <laughs> with yeah. a political situation mm. and worrying about, is this one electable? Is that one electable? What will I do? Where will I vote? <laughs> how do I do this? But yeah, I, in terms of doing the right thing, how do you take a breath and put one foot in front of the other, you know, and say, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I'm going to try something. And in that chapter, I I think I tell the story of the frogs who fell in the milk. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And the frog, the smart frog says, we're going to die. We can't get out of this bucket of milk. And so he gives up and he dies. But the dumb frog says, doesn't say, doesn't understand that he's going to die. So he keeps paddling his legs until the milk turns to butter and he crawls out. We don't really know what's going to happen if we continue to put our effort forward. And in that situation, of course, it was for you horrifying to find someone in this kind of condition. And for me, terrifying. And people said to me, well, I noticed in that story you stopped for a little uh, steak knife Mm. to take with you. It's like... Right. How is that going to work against some gang of men 
as a 20-year-old girl, how am I going to do that? But holding on to it um, was something that gave me the courage to go forward. Mm. And we just don't know how things are going to turn out. We do our best. And then we look back and say, well, I could have done this and I could have done that. And we torment ourselves. But, but that's when I remind myself that nothing would do. So we just do. I think that's the important thing for me. Sometime I read when I was a child, I read something, maybe in a Reader's Digest that said, I'd rather be sorry for things that I did than things I didn't do. Mm. Yeah. And so that doing, that action part, which comes from, you know, suffering and awareness meeting is a really important uh, motivator for us. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's like this undercurrent in the book of abuse, like the girl in the alley, and then there's more abuse within the book. Um, so thinking more along the lines of that, you, you know, you write movingly about Shinryu Suzuki Roshi in the book and how um, he would handle sexual attraction among his female students. And that was so intriguing because we live in, you know, the era of like Me Too, where days after the Harvey Weinstein verdict, there have been multiple documented sex scandals within Zen, um, even at the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, but his response, whenever a young woman would convey her attraction for him, he would say, don't worry, I have enough discipline for the both of us, which is, you know, so fantastic. And I talked to Michael Downing, author of Shoes Outside the Door, about San Francisco Cisco Zen Center, which features a ton of people that I assume you know. Um, you know, how do you feel about um, the, the era in which we live and how Zen is struggling to find its way amidst sex scandals, but also having this um, model of Suzuki Roshi, having this uh, profound discipline, um, even in the midst of having all this power that he had, you know, he was a powerful figure and he was disciplined and refrained, but not everybody does. Well, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I've been involved in uh, working with um, witnessing many of these situations. Um, I was called in in the um, Shimano situation when the Sangha was stepping forth to deal with it. I did some work on the witness pro um, project for Sasaki. And since then, I have been called often by many women across the United States. And I always go to bat. <laughs> and people say, well, how, how do you know that something has happened? And I said, well, they're not particularly, there's a, there's a flavor. They're not particularly angry, but there's a flavor of shame. Mm -hmm. And women who have been molested in this way, as we saw with the Harvey Weinstein case, don't necessarily come forward because it's on them. Something they did wrong to make this happen. That's how we've been acculturated. So um, I do a lot of work and um, have been doing a lot of work forming teams with attorneys and others and seniors and teachers to speak for these women. So that's one thing. I find it very difficult to be at Zen institutions after having heard all these stories mm. and knowing the subtleties the, the pressures that are going on. And I do what I can to bring it forward. But right now, for example, when I go to talk about my book, it's generally with, at smaller institutions with women teachers. So it's very hard for me now. I've been 
what they call a vicarious traumatization of hearing all these stories. And the thing about Suzuki Roshi came from a different, uh, his culture, he never taught women really. He may, maybe he knew one or two Zen nuns in all of his time in Japan, but he didn't teach women. And when he established Chasahara uh, Mountain Center, uh, retreat center for San Francisco Zen Center, he didn't want to allow women to come because he didn't know anything about training women. But you know, his American students said, no, we can't do that. So he allowed that, but he would sort of puzzle about this kind of um, open sexuality that was occurring, of course, during the 60s, it was particularly intense. Um, it's like, I don't understand what you all are doing here because I come from an, a different culture. So he, he came from a different culture that, and he was a different type of person because some of the Japanese teachers who came over came over and perpetrated that kind of abuse. But yeah, he was different that way. Mm. And I mean, throughout the book, you also write about several unnamed bullies. (laughs) And I have my theories in my head of who some of these bullies are because I've, you know, read some articles about these events um, over the last several years. Do those bullies um, know who they are? Do you have any indication that they've learned anything from their past mistreatments of other people? Um, I can't say. I don't know what's inside their head. Um, and um, some of them, I think, do go through some form of rehabilitation. There's a a good book, Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, which talks about what kind of teachers can be rehabilitated, who can have this realization, oops, I've really gone off the path here and done some things that are wrong, and which ones cannot. And so the ones who do it over and over again, they can't really get it or be changed. The ones who maybe have done it and then it's called out, Uh, then they can change. And this is um, pretty much what I'm interested in right now is how do we create a sangha that is following enough of the tradition to honor the teacher's teaching, even though it may be imperfect, but can also call out the teacher and establish the appropriate boundaries within the sangha. So I don't think it's about the teacher's because it was just a few rotten apples when they acted out, the sangha would throw them out, but they don't. Mm. And so it is the resemblance, and I'm not saying Zen is a cult, but it's a resemblance to cult dynamics that I think perpetuate this within a sangha till it gets, till it reaches a boiling point and then maybe somebody does something about it. Well, I think that you openly saying that, um, that the tendencies of the groups to do these certain types of behaviors, I think you openly stating that is, you know, just a huge step in the right direction and you're doing what you can, you know, when nothing, when nothing will do, you're doing anyway. Uh, Yeah. So I did write something for uh, a psychoanalytic journal about the promise and peril of Buddhist meditation practice, which is about the ways um, that Zen communities display the characteristics that have been identified by sociologists and psychologists as cult practices. Mm. <clears throat> so 
they happen to be, you know, this intense um, obedience to a teacher, which has been, it's part of the Japanese tradition and also part of all the sort of guru and religious uh, demagogues uh, tradition. But also the fact that we meditate and we're sleep deprived and we allow the community to tell us what to wear and how to work and things like that. All of these factors and, and um, when we speak out, we're questioned, we're told not to know, only, only don't know. All of these things dis discourage us from speaking out. And so how do we make this tra correct translation of authentic practice to our culture in a way that isn't harmful. Yeah. You know, and speaking of harm, uh, you write a lot about physical ability within the book as well. Um, and I know that you write in the book that you've had some like knee injuries and like surgeries. And like, that was another thing that jumped out at me in the book is because I've had back surgery, I've had knee surgery. And so like, if I do a meditation practice, it's like always on like a Seiza bench. Um, so something that you seem very aware of is the physical ability of the body within Zen practice. Um, so how do you teach and work with students of all abilities in an open way that meets everybody's needs kind of where they are? Well, we can say what we, <clears throat> we can say, oh, it's fine to sit in a chair. But if we emphasize by our own behaviors that it's much better if you can sit you know, in a half lotus or a lotus position. If we emphasize that, we're not helping people. And I felt for a long time that, and my belief is, that people who sit in chairs have already admitted they failed at being good, looking like good. Love so that. they've already failed. So the fact that they come in and practice anyway as a failure, to me, makes them heroic. And recently, I... Um, led a retreat at Chikojini uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Whole Life Buddha Retreat, which is, you, look, this is really difficult. You're gonna have to practice for your whole life. And through your whole life, you may, may be strong when you're young, but you're mm -hmm. gonna wear your joints out anyway as you age. So as one nun said in a book, um, I'll sit as long as I can sit, then I'll sit on a chair and then I'll, um, do my meditation laying down until the big fire takes me so we're all through our whole lives we're not going to get better at this mm. <laughs> sitting business so um in that retreat um not only were people encouraged to take care of themselves by sitting in chairs or however we had a couple of people in wheelchairs who participated but also i said you need to rest when you need to rest you need to go out and take a walk when you need to stretch your muscles. So here's the deal. Try to do every other period of Zazen if you can. Every other period, do meditation. In between, take care of yourself. And so that's what my predilection is now is that, great, the heroic people who can sit and, uh, sit and look like good, they can go to the monasteries and knock yourselves out. But for, there's a lot of us who need to practice for our whole life and need to find ways to do that that don't injure us. When I was in Japan, I saw one person who was in the process of injuring his knees and I could see him you know, putting his hand to his knee and I said, look, 
it's not only that you're going to lose the ability to sit half lotus, but you're not going to be able to walk if you keep this up. <laughs> so you have to think about that, what you're doing to your knees right now. And um, that's the way I feel about it is that the values are so strong and so misguided in that many of the leaders that were selected in the first generation of American teachers were very able-bodied. And I don't think having good joints and ligaments means that you have good spiritual development. I don't think they're equivalent. Mm. So it doesn't matter. You know, what matters is that you understand, and as Fukushima Roshi said, that you can watch your own mind, not that you can sit in a particular position. And he was very um, helpful to me in that way. And even though he was a Rinzai teacher in Japan, and I have a chapter in the book called Don't Bow. Yeah, love that chapter. I after knee surgery, and I went to do Doksan with him, and I started to bow, and he said, don't bow, because he knew I had it had this surgery and I needed this surgery. And so he, I said, it's okay. I had the surgery. And then he screamed at me, don't bow as loud as he could. And then I got it. And sometimes that happens, you know, you get a hard head. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're a stubborn person. You need to get somebody to yell at you. And that was something that I then could take back and, and teach my own students and guide my own students with, which is, look, your body will tell you, don't do that. Well, I know that you also have a really uh, specific approach to food as well, because temple food, you write openly in the book, is just not for you. Um, so like knowing your own issues with like food and digestive health, how do you plan menus for different people with different food needs whenever you do, whenever you lead retreats? Well, one of the things when I did have <clears throat> a Zen retreat center, we had a separate kitchen. So there was a microwave in there and you could bring what you needed. And I had one person who was having particular uh, digestive issues and he had hamburgers for every meal in the Zendo. <laughs> nice. And that, was, that was fine. It's like, okay, do what you need to do. And this is what Fukushima taught me too, which was you figure out how you're going to eat while you're here. And then come to Zazen when you can. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that instructed me and that's how I instructed people. Figure out what you need. And if people were coming for a long, like a month-long retreat, they would say, I'm shipping a bunch of gluten-free products. I say, fine, we have a place for you in the kitchen. You can eat what you need to eat and take care of yourself. Are you, do you feel like you're the kind of teacher that attracts people that are looking for sort of like a punk rock alternative way of approaching Zen because you're going to allow people to be themselves more than in like a more straightforward traditional structure? Well, I don't know about that because I'm not really taking on students now. I have a couple and I say, look, I'm sorry about this, but I'm not going to be in this business very much longer because I have to take care of myself. And that means I need to make time every single day for exercise and time to write and think and relax at 73. So I'm not in the teacher business. It's extremely stressful because actually you're doing open heart surgery without an anesthetic. So people, people will fight you for the things that they believe in, even though they're hurting them and delusional. So I've just decided now, okay, I've done that. I have some Dharma errors. Bye-bye now, let them take that on. Nice. But I think um, people 
as I understood it, people went to well-established Zen centers. And the students I had were because in the locations I was in, there wasn't anybody else. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know that I had particularly uh, a reputation for working with people who <laughs> were rebellious. But I do know that I did have several women students who had had difficulty with other teachers and I wasn't afraid of their strength or their rebelliousness. And so that worked out for us. I love it. Well, um, Roshi Grace, I have one more question for you. So mm -hmm. a concept in the book that I loved like so much is WITBO, which stands for wishing it to be otherwise. And you identify this, I believe rightly, as a root cause of suffering in people. So like, wishing there to be another president, wishing an insurance company would cover more of a medical bill, wishing we would drop less bombs, wishing we had more money in our jobs, wishing our friends would call us more. So like we, we constantly obsess about things that aren't happening. And so for those who may be listening, who may be mired and conflicted by Whitbo. You can speak directly to them. What is, the, what is your essential teaching of how to address Whitbo and regain some composure and happiness in our lives? Well, I think that I made it a concise expression because once we, as you say, put it into words, it gives us something. So here it is. We need to identify what that feels like when we're doing it. And then we can say, ah! No wonder it feels so awful right now. I'm doing Whitbo. And uh, the other expression I have for that is, you're clutching razor blades. When you grab on to something that you want to happen and you tighten and tighten and tighten around, it only hurts more. So we need to identify what that feels like in the body and say to ourselves, oh, that's what I'm doing, no wonder. I feel this way. And then we start to take some breaths and release that hand that's clutching. Well, Roshi Grace Shearson, um, new book, Naked in the Zendo from Shambhala Publications. Loved the book. Read it on an airplane 40,000 feet above planet Earth. <laughs> and it was a really great way to spend my time. And I am super grateful to you for spending this hour with me today to talk about the book. Thank you so much. Do you have a place that you would recommend, like direct people towards? Like do you have a website or anything like that that you wanted to uh, promote to people? Yes, I do. I have uh, gracesherson.com. And occasionally I will blog. I'm in, I'm in one of those uh, sort of rebellious against myself times right now because I'm so preoccupied with my witbo of what are we going to do and nothing will do with this political situation, watching things unfold. But that's, uh, that's where I have writings, gracechearson.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. 
or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.